Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I've been telling my story there of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Now, before we get to today's guest, I just want to give you a little bit of an update on what's happening in my world, because a lot of you have been nice enough to write in and ask about it. Um, So I have written a novel called The Burden Place. And right now I'm going through the mostly terrifying process of what's called querying my novel, which means I've been sending it out to agents and publishers to try to find uh, someone who would like to partner with me and publish this book. And I have to tell you, as a 52-year-old grandmother who's been married for 30 years, I am finding this process the closest thing to what I imagine online dating must be in this age, because it is a real emotional roller coaster of feeling great about yourself one moment and terrible about yourself the next moment. But I'm really, really proud of this book and really looking forward to the day that I can tell you where to buy it. And uh, hopefully it won't be too long before I can make that announcement for you. I also have another novel underway. This one is more directly about recovery. The other one is a kind of historical fiction that's more about the sort of undercurrents of mental illness and addiction in families um, during you know, the 1930s. This book is that I'm writing now is more sort of chiclet, as they call it, uh, female fiction, and also quit lit, and I'm using air quotes while I say that, so it's really sort of, um, it's contemporary fiction with a recovery twist, so that's been really fun to write, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I've also just started creating a nonfiction series about the lessons I've learned along the way in recovery, and I've said all along, I'm not an expert, I'm not going to write nonfiction, how to get sober books, that is not my thing, but So many of you have written and been so encouraging uh, about sharing some of the wisdom that is contained sort of holistically in seven uh, seasons of the bubble hour and eight years of writing my blog. There's been so much input and wisdom that has been sort of achieved I guess, as a group conscious of the back and forth between people, that it's really nice to be able to compile some of that in one place and create a series of books for different situations. So I'm actually working on that right now. Um, So keep an eye out for those. I'm hoping to have the first one ready for you in time for the holiday season. And there will be updates to follow on that end of things. Watch it on unpickledblog.com and on jeanmccarthy.ca. So with all of this happening, plus, uh, you know, my regular life, which is three grandkids that I help watch, and my husband and I have a little retirement business that we run from home, and uh, you know that I like to hike and ski and do all these active things. Sometimes you'll notice I take a week off the podcast um, unexpectedly, or it's been a while since I posted on my blog. Um, And in the last week, so my guest canceled last week, which is fine, that happens. And I got no less than five emails from listeners and readers asking if I was okay. And their fear is that I had relapsed, 
because I was suddenly gone. And um, I thought, oh, gosh, it's only been a week. But, you know, I really understand and appreciate how supportive and caring this community is. And it is the first thing a lot of us worry about when someone drops off the grid unexpectedly that they may have had some trouble. And um, so I have to tell you, please don't worry. I'm doing great. Uh, I am just Sometimes I feel like a chihuahua in a horse race trying to keep up with everything that uh, is happening in life. But uh, rest assured, all is well here. So um, anyway, if you, uh, if you are wondering how things are going for me and you're not seeing updates on the blog or this podcast, uh, you can check Twitter because I'm on Twitter at uh, Jean McCarthy underscore CA and also Instagram, Jean McCarthy writes on Instagram. So um, just a word there of, I guess, thank you to the people who wrote and were concerned, but also uh, a word of assurance too. And a reminder that sometimes taking time off is part of self-care. So that's all the housekeeping notes that I wanted to pass on for this week. Let's get to today's guest. And our guest is a listener by the name of Maria, who is on the line with us now. And she's here to share her story. She's coming up soon to celebrate a thousand days of sobriety. Maria, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to have you here with us today and looking forward to hearing your story about how you found yourself where you needed to make a change and what you did to make that happen. So please tell us your story, Maria. Thank you so much, Jean. Also, I just did want to say I'm very excited about your books. I'm a big reader, and I, I very much hope somebody picks them up because I can't wait to read them. <laughs> Thank you. So let me start. Um, so my name's Maria, as you said. I'm 48, and I have almost 1,000 days sobriety now. I'm 963 days, my little app tells me. So I was 46 when I decided to stop drinking. And from my accent, you can hear that I'm British, but I live in America. I live in California, and I came over here 20, um, more than 20 years ago to, um, to work and ended up staying in the USA. But I still have a strong connection to the UK as well. Um, and I found the bubble hour, I think, during my first year of sobriety, I was training to run a marathon. And so on those long training runs, I was look, always looking for podcasts to listen to. And I listened to, I think, the entire seven seasons, the entire back catalog of the bubble hour during my training runs. And just hearing the stories of other people and just allow, it really allowed me to feel so much less alone. Because I think when you realize that something's going wrong with your drinking, it's such a lonely feeling. Because for me, at least, everybody around me um, just seemed to be how we always had been, you know, drinking, going out, having fun. I didn't see anyone else struggling. And when I realized that that wasn't the case, that there were hundreds of people with a similar story, it really just allowed me to feel less alone, to feel less scared, and also less angry with myself for what had, had happened to me. Um, so that's why I wanted to talk to you today and just share my my story which is both it's my own story but it's not unique it's very similar to many many other stories so as well as the bubble hour one of the big sources of support I found when I was getting sober was this website called Soberistas which I think there's a lot of overlap in the different types of supports people use so I bet some people listening to the bubble hour are on also Soberistas so for those people I'm Science Girl that's my name my handle on the Soberistas site is Science Girl um, and I use that name because I am a scientist I work in the biopharma industry I have a career that I love and I still use Soberistas I go there almost every day still to check in with people share my thoughts and now to provide support for other people 
because I love being sober. And if you'd have met me three years ago, um, I, I, you would never have imagined that I was the kind of person who would love being sober. And I just want to share that as much as I can with people in my life now. And I'm so grateful for all of the books, all of the blogs, all of the Instagram, you know, everything that's out there now to support people when they start to realize that, you know, alcohol, something that's been part of our lives for, for such a long time, and probably most many of us assumed it would always be in our lives, isn't working anymore. So I, I, I'm very grateful to the communities that are out there for that. So let me take you through my journey, because I didn't always have a problem with alcohol. I mean, I, don't, I didn't think so. You can draw your own conclusions from what I tell you. And honestly, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what happened. Um, I've always been a sort of personal growth kind of a person. I've always kept a journal. And so when I, it's interesting to me to read it back now because it was actually probably in my early 40s, about four or five years before I stopped drinking, that I first started to have these little worries about my drinking. So this time I was divorced. I'm a single mom and I have kids who are 13 and 11 right now. And I, I was working full time. I still do. I divorced when I was 42. My kids were four and six at the time. And my ex-husband and I had been, I guess, what I would have considered to be moderate drinkers. We were just people who drank and partied. We worked hard. We played hard. We have both have graduate degrees from top universities. We have good jobs. And we'd met when we were about 27 in the San Francisco where we lived. We were drunk when we met at a party. That was how we lived back then. Um, and I lived with flatmates. So did he. You know, we all this kind of gang of friends and we just basically went to parties and concerts and you know had all sorts of crazy times and while we there were plenty of hangovers perhaps some regrettable hookups and you know I, I lost my passport one time it was never it wasn't a problem time it, and, and when I look back on those early years when I was a uh, first single and then when I was first dating my husband in my late 20s I can't look those those are fond memories for me I don't look back on those as problem times um, and so before we had kids you know my ex and I were married and we went out a lot it was the first the dot-com boom the late 90s in San Francisco so we'd go out cocktails wine whatever we'd drink we'd get drunk but not horribly ridiculously drunk and we gradually increased I think the quality of our drinking because our incomes increased we we're into the restaurant scene and now I would always end up you know once or twice a month with some terrible hangover I've always been really sensitive to alcohol but it, I just kind of accepted that it was like bad weather you know it was something that just happened every now and again that you'd accidentally have too much wine and have a horrible hangover and get over it um, but then we had children and that changed things a lot. I was 35 when I had my first child. So we, we, we'd had a lot of, you know, youthful, extended use, my ex-husband and I. And so after the kids, drinking became an at-home thing. We collected wine. We drank yeah, maybe three or four nights of the week. We wouldn't drink too much on a weeknight. And my ex-husband had a family history of alcoholism. His grandfather had been, you know, a, a classic non-functional alcoholic. So he was always super careful, you know, with alcohol. And we, and tend, we tended to keep an eye on each other. If we were out and one of us was getting a little crazy, we'd be like, oh, hang on a minute, have some water. And we sort of watched out for each other. Um, and before the kids, I don't think we ever... So I, I never I don't remember ever feeling the need to self self medicate, to drink for stress or to drink to relax. It was just something that we did for fun. It was something we didn't even think about. Um so that's kind of where I was, you know, the sort of early parts of my of my my life with my ex husband. And I was thinking back to, you know, my even earlier years. Growing up in the UK, um, you start drinking when you're about 16 or 17, which that's normal. It was in the 80s then. My, my parents would buy me alcohol. It was not like a, a, a rebel thing. 
and I went to university, university in the UK, you can drink at 18. It's, it all, culture revolves around the bars. And so I drank a lot. I didn't count how much I drank. I'm sure if I went back and counted, I was drinking way more than the recommended amounts of alcohol. But we just didn't, didn't even cross our minds that that was something we would or wouldn't do. But equally, if there was a, you know, exams coming up, if there was a, you know, a lot of work to be done, I just didn't drink for a few weeks. It was, it was, it was a sort of very much a take or leave it type of a thing. Um, you know, I was, I, I got a great degree. I never missed a class in college. I just didn't think about it at all. I drank regularly. I got drunk regularly. Every now and again, I drank too much and I felt ill. I always had terrible hangovers, you know, every now and again. But it was, I just didn't weigh on me. I never had a blackout. I never got into an awkward situation. And this was how I drank from about 18 till about 40. It was heavy, but it was normal. Like when I had my kids, you know, 35 and 37, I completely stopped drinking, didn't even cross. It was easy to stop. And then, you know, I started up again after I had the kids. But then something shifted after I had the kids. There were less opportunities to go out and socialize. So I think I drank more at home. My ex was working very long hours, very late. So I would open wine before he came home. And I started slowly to sort of rush through bedtime so that I could get to my glass of wine. I really bought into that wine mum culture thing. I loved all those memes. I have still kicking around somewhere napkins that say, you know, which wine goes best with your child's crappy behavior and all, all, all those types of things. So I, that was just me. I, it really spoke to me. And I started to gradually, that thinking about that evening glass of wine, the thoughts started to kick in, you know, 2 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 11 o'clock, you know, in the morning. I'm like, the thing I'm looking forward to the most was my evening glass of wine. And this just very, very gradually started to take up more of my headspace. And I don't think quantity-wise I was really drinking more, but something had changed in my head. Now, I had a blog back then in, I think, 2009, and I followed Stephanie Wilder-Taylor. Some of you might remember her. Who um, she's, a, she's a sober um, advocate now. But back then, she, had this, she wrote a book called Sippy Cups Are Not for Chardonnay, which was a wine mum culture book. And I loved her, and I thought she was really funny. And then she came out on her blog as an alcoholic. And I was both horrified but also somewhat fascinated. And I think it planted a little seed in my mind because my conscious thought was, oh my goodness, I'm not. I'm so glad I'm not like her. How awful would that be to have to give up drinking? Somewhere in my subconscious, I think I knew that I was on that same path that she was on. And I continued to read her blog and follow her. And then, you know, there were little things like a, a family friend got sober, a, a friend who I would never have guessed from the outside to have had a, a problem with alcohol, but this person got sober and I was very curious about him. Another friend was taking a break from, from drinking on one of our girls' getaways. And again, I was just very curious about that. That was even a thing you could do. But I still wasn't ready to question my own drinking because alcohol was just so much a part of my life. Um, that was Becoming a mom, again, I think, I see as this pivotal time in my sort of drinking changes because it was the first time I really felt a gender imbalance. Like up until I was in my late 30s, I had been very successful at work in my environment, hadn't really felt the difference of being female. And then you have a baby and people say to you, but not to your husband, oh, are you going to go back to work after you have the baby? And I, I was like, why are you asking me this and not asking my husband? And I started to f just feel the differences, feel that societal pressure on your choices. And that takes a subtle toll, I think. And I gradually, I think that dragged me a little bit more into drinking to escape. 
Now, I, I ended up divorcing my, my ex-husband for various reasons. Parenting was challenging for us as a couple. And so I, was, I, I went off on my own with my kids. And that was another step, I think, towards addiction. I moved away from, from him. I took a, took a new job in a new city, and I had the kids with me. And I still remember, I think this is a real pivotal thing. I would go you know, grocery shopping for me and the kids. And it just didn't occur to me not to put a bottle of wine in the shopping cart, even though I was now by myself. And they always tell you never to drink alone. But it, for me, it was like, but I have wine with my dinner. I didn't, I didn't even think about it. But in retrospect, I would, all, I, I would call that out as a, as a behavior that took me down a slippery slope. Because once, when you're on your own and you open a whole bottle of wine, it's just so much easier to drink a whole bottle of wine. My ex-husband and I would never open two bottles of wine. We would open one between us, and the most you would drink would be half a bottle. But on my own, I would just you know, keep drinking until I wanted to stop drinking. Um, and... I was working, raising my kids. I had a nanny. You know, I, I didn't have a bad life, I have to say. And I was up early. I was working hard. I did a lot of running. I looked good on the outside. And then I was offered another really amazing job opportunity, which took me to Chicago. So I picked up my kids again, twice in two years, and moved to a new city. And I joked to people, it was kind of like being in the witness protection program. You show up on your own two kids, new school system, new doctors. You can imagine it takes a lot to make that happen. And if you had asked me, I would have told you that I couldn't have done that without wine. The wine kept me sane. It was my therapy in a bottle. And I, I was in therapy as well, but I never talked about drinking when I was in therapy. It, it just didn't occur to me as something that was an issue. It was just this normal thing in my life, and I didn't think about it. And at some point while I was living in Chicago, raising my two kids, working, I suddenly started to worry that I was drinking too much. I'd never paid attention to how much I was drinking. You know, if I'd ever sort of tried to add up how many units I drank, if I was at the doctor's, I would sort of, do, you know, add it up on my hands, think, well, that can't be right. Because um, I'm drinking a lot of units, but I don't drink too much. You know, so my, my, my internal logic was, well, oh, that, that must be wrong. I must have got it wrong. Um, and then I started to also track calories, you know, getting older, getting into my 40s, started to gain weight. And then I, it was that. It was doing the calorie tracking. I was real, and being very honest, I realized, oh, my goodness, I'm drinking, like, you know, thousands of calories of wine every week. That is insane. And I, and it, and I sort of had a little bit of a wake-up moment. It's like, oh, my goodness, how much am I drinking? This is insane. Um, and I don't know whether quantity is always the thing to focus on. I think it's sometimes the headspace. But I was probably drinking 40 units of alcohol, like four bottles of wine a week. Um, and that just felt normal to me. And I think a lot of people actually have no idea what normal drinking or what, what moderate drinking actually is. Um, and I, I really do have, feel strongly that a bottle of wine should have written on it that this has this many alcohol units in it. And this is how many you should drink a week. So you don't drink you know, more than one or two bottles of wine a week. That's too much. Because I was, complete, I was actually really shocked by how much I was drinking over the guidelines and have been for so many years. And I think because with this new kind of realization that my drinking was getting a little bit too extreme. I read Drink by Anne Dowsett Johnson and Drinking a Love Story. And those two books, um, I think I was just drawn to them. I think the subconscious and the, my subconscious and the universe sort of drew me to those books because I was, I see, when I look back now, I see myself being pulled along on a journey because this was still a couple of years before I quit drinking. I actually sat on my couch with a big glass of wine in my hand and read Drinking a Love Story by Caroline Knapp and thought, oh my God, poor woman, I am so glad I am not that bad. I would, just, I couldn't bear to have to give up drinking. That would be awful. And of course, at the, all at the same time, 
my drinking was slowly getting out of my control. You know, I started to try and keep count and to moderate. I started to make rules, no weeknights unless I'm going out. So I would go out to take, oh, I'll take the kids out for dinner because then I can have some wine because I'm out. No more than half a bottle at a time. So I started to actually buy wine in little half bottles, even though that's not a very economical way to buy wine at all, because it just forced me to not, you know, I was unable sometimes if I opened a bottle of wine to put a cork in at the half mark and save it till tomorrow. Um, So I would buy these little half bottles. And I gradually, I looked at myself and I realized that, you know, what is this? Is this enjoying moderate drinking or is this managing an alcohol addiction? And I realized that that's what I was doing. And there was no rock bottom moment for me. I had a few things. I, I went back through my journals. Um, there were a few bad moments. I once, um, I used to travel a lot for work and I, you know, you sit in these uh, airline clubs. My plane had been delayed. I drank, you know, I don't know, four or five glasses of wine probably before I arrived at my destination. My boss was on the same plane and we shared a cab to the hotel. And I then realized I'd gone to the wrong hotel. And he, like my boss must have thought I was just like a total idiot. I was really worried in the morning. I'm like, God, did he did he notice how horribly drunk I was? Probably. Um, you know, I would have important meetings at work and wake up in the morning just having accidentally, I would think of it, overdrunk. I thought, oh, God, I'm so hungover. And having to call into the meeting on the phone instead of showing up in person. There were Saturday mornings where I, you know, my kids had various activities and some Saturday mornings where just for no reason, you know, maybe I'd been at book club, maybe I'd just been drinking a bottle of wine in front of the TV. I was too hungover to take them to their activities. And I would call my nanny and have her take them. And on the same type of thing. I would show up at, you know, a, a kids' social practice, social group or orchestra practice or whatever, and I'd have to go back and sleep in my car. I would have to pull over and throw up on the way to these activities, and then I would just look at myself and think, you know, this this isn't okay. Um, I drove after having drunk several glasses of wine on more than one occasion, and that, that you have these lines in the sand, and I saw myself crossing lines that I never thought I would cross, and this was a really scary period of time for me. Coming home from work, um, I would work from home on Friday afternoons, and I would just pick up a glass of wine at you know lunchtime on Friday when I got home. Even though I was going to a Pilates class that I paid you know good money for at five o'clock on a Friday, I'd have a couple of glasses of wine before I would go. Isn't that ridiculous? What a thing to do! Um, I remember a time where I was at a work dinner, and the budget only allowed two glasses of wine per person, and I was just I was so apparent to me how fast I wanted to drink those glasses of wine compared to everyone else and how I was going to have to buy more to have at home because two just wasn't enough. And I think the last time, I, the last time I got actually got drunk, I was coming home from a family visit to the UK in business class and you know, they just keep feeding you alcohol and I just kept drinking it until I suddenly realized halfway across the Atlantic that I was horribly drunk, horribly sick. I had to run to the little bathroom on the plane and throw up and these things were a little unsteady and I remember just like kneeling in there, cleaning up all this like red wine puke from the bathroom and hoping that I wasn't going to leave a mess for the flight attendants and just feeling so totally wretched. Um, and that was that was really the that was the last time I ever got drunk. So that was, took me to January 2017. And I decided to do, oh, well, I'll do a dry January. And I'd never done this before. The only times I'd not drunk for a period of time was when I was pregnant. Even when I went on a diet, I would be like, well, obviously, I'm still going to drink wine. You know, I'm not going to cut that out. Um, And so I decided to do this dry January. And it was so much harder than I thought. It was kind of my worst realization. It was like, yeah, I mean, I really am. I'm in trouble here. 
Um, and around about this time, somebody posted on Facebook a link to, an, to Annie Grace, this naked mind. I think it was a little meme called Six Reasons I Love Not Drinking. And I clicked on that. And again, I think this is one of these moments where you're like, the universe was, was there for me at that moment in time. And I followed that link and I bought that book, um, This Naked Mind, um, which has that sort of um, little subtitle that pulls you in. It's, it says something like how to control your drinking, which is what I thought I wanted to do at the time. And I read that book through because I was looking for the secret. I, I couldn't understand why I couldn't do what I had always done in the past, which was drink sometimes and not drink sometimes. Um, and so I read the book through. It's a great book. I'm sure many people who listen to this podcast have read it. And I, it was a huge aha moment for me because I realized um, when I read that book, that the moderation wasn't ever going to be the answer, that I'd, I'd reached the point where that wasn't going to work. And that's when I just jumped in. I started to listen to this podcast. I listened to other podcasts. I, I've read every book about sobriety, I think, that's ever been written. I found the Soberista site. But I still wasn't quite ready to walk away. And, and I wanted to describe to you guys the, what really kicked it for me, that, re, that really made me realize that I had to stop. I had a glass, I had a bottle of wine left at home with a single glass in it. I think my ex-husband had been visiting with the kids. And, and I was like, okay, I'm going to just drink that single glass of wine. I don't have any more alcohol in the house. There's only that glass of wine. I'm going to drink it and just see what happens. And I documented it in my journal. And what really struck me, the minute I, you know, I, I was standing in front of the wine, I'm like, I feel like a glass of wine. A glass of wine would be nice. I drank three mouthfuls of wine and my, something just flipped in my brain that said, I need more wine. This is, there's never enough wine in this glass. I'm going to have to go out and get some more wine. And I didn't have any more wine. I wasn't going to drive out and get any because this was an experiment that I was doing. And I sat there just craving alcohol for about an hour, probably. And then that craving completely passed. And that was so revelatory to me. I knew that alcohol had done something to my brain, that it wasn't the way it used to be, and that I, could never, that I wasn't ever just going to want a glass of wine anymore, that all a glass of wine does for me is make me want another glass of wine. And that, you know, that, that all, of the other, all of the good stuff I used to get from this is completely gone. And I think that was the beginning for me of, of an acceptance that something had changed. And alcohol wasn't ever going to be the same for me. And I could never go back to being that oblivious person who just, you know, drank or didn't drink and didn't think about it. And so then I decided to do a 100-day challenge. And they have this on the Soberista site. I joined the 100-day thread, they called it, which is a bunch of people all starting at the same time to, to do 100 days. And so before this challenge, this is my very last, my last drink was on February 15th, 2017. I had just been offered another job. This is the job I have now, and it's a job that took me from Chicago back to California. It's a fantastic job. Um, and so I had just got this offer. And I thought, well, this is a perfect time to have my very last ever glass of wine. It's celebrating a job offer. Um, I was in the United Club in Boston Logan Airport at the scene of many, many, many drunken uh, moments for me. And I just sat and I was like, I really, I, this is my last glass of wine. And I didn't like the taste of it. I really noticed how it impaired me. I was sitting there feeling quite drunk, I think just just boggled by the fact that I used to be so drunk all the time in airports. I, how did I not miss planes and like lose luggage all the time? I, I, I was very, very fortunate, I think. And I just hated the feeling. And I could not wait for that glass of wine to wear off, that dull, cotton wool, disconnected feeling to go away. And I, I really, I just... I knew that I just wanted, when I felt sober again, when that glass of wine wore off, I knew that that was it. There was, there was never again did I want to feel that way. 
And so from then on, I've just, you know, this was now 963 days ago, I've thrown myself into sobriety. You know, I read, I blog, I listen, um, and I've started to share more with family and friends. I started this job I have now as a sober person. I moved to a new house. I moved my kids, for what I hope is the last time, to a new town and a new school. And this time, I know I couldn't have done this without being sober. I couldn't have picked up everybody and moved again if I was still hobbling myself with all of that wine and it that's when it occurred to me that I had spent so much of my life just making things harder than they needed to be like I, I use the analogy that it's like running a marathon but with a ball and chain tied around your foot sure you can I mean I was I've always been successful my you know I've done super well at work I've you know I've always got things done but yet I was just hobbling myself by constantly pouring wine down my neck and I think I, one of the things I wanted to share with people, if you're still in that space of thinking, oh, I need to drink in order to cope with the stress and busyness of my life, and, I, and that's exactly how I felt, I would just want to say to people that you, you don't, we don't realize that the stress is actually coming from the alcohol, that drinking every night takes away time, it steals it, and the things that you... You know, you're putting off and like that are standing between you and your wine, your shopping, you're organizing your kids. These types of things become pleasurable things in themselves when you're no longer trying to get through them to get to your wine. And, you know, life without alcohol in it, it was such a revelation to me how much space and how much time I had. And so I think the, the message that resonated with me, and I think this is something that, um, I think it's Laura McCowan, who I follow on Instagram, has said is, the question isn't, is my drinking enough of a problem for me to have to stop drinking? But is my life good enough for me to keep doing it? And I think that's exactly what I wish I had looked at longer ago, was rather than saying, well, yeah, I drink a lot, but, you know, I'm fine. Look how successful I am. I would turn that around and say, think how much better things could be if you didn't drink, given, you know, given how much it's taking away. Because I'd really got myself to this place where wine was my main source of, source of pleasure. And I would, I would have told you that I loved wine. And I think that, that is what it is, that alcohol hijacks those parts of the brain that, that feel love. And that's why you start to unconsciously put that love of alcohol before even your family, like breaking promises. Like one of my sort of most shameful and saddest moments is remembering my little girl, who would have been about 11 at the time. I was all dressed up and ready to go out to, I think, a holiday party. And she looked at me in my beautiful outfit and said, Mommy, you know, please don't drink too much because you, I don't want you to feel ill tomorrow. I hate when you get sick like that. And it just broke my heart that my little children associated me getting fancy and going out with me being broken and throwing up the next day, you know, made me so sad. And I, I'm still, my kids to this day are so, so happy that I don't drink anymore. They're so proud of me. So I don't regret my journey to here. You know, I don't think it could have been any different. I don't regret how I was. And I don't think I could have evolved any other way. But it really shocks me how unaware I was. I, I really wasn't aware of how addictive alcohol was until it happened to me. And I'm a scientist. I have, you know, I, I know intellectually how the mammalian brain works. I've read papers about alcohol addiction. And, you know, I know I understand the addiction models we use in rats and mice to study addiction. But when it started to happen to my own brain, I didn't notice and when I did notice, it was terrifying. And so I really, I do think we just need so much more awareness around what addiction looks like and how common it is and what it feels like and how to notice if it might be happening to you. So we have now these dry Januaries and sober Octobers, which are awesome. But I do think these need to come along with the message that if, if you try a sober October and you find it really, really hard, then you might want to take a look at you know, whether, what alcohol is doing for you. Not with any sense of shame, just because it's an addictive substance and people get addicted to it. And I think 
we need to have a little bit of a separation because there's quantity of alcohol, which, yes, it's bad for your health, but you can drink large quantities of alcohol and actually not be addicted to it. And, you know, on the other side, you can be addicted to alcohol without actually consuming vast quantities of it as well. But I think this is the addiction component that I think is missing from our sort of public health education in some ways. Because once your choice has gone away, that slope gets slippery really, really fast. And I'm eternally grateful for the fact that I stopped myself, that I came across the right information at the right time before I descended further into addiction, because I have no doubt that I, that I would have done if I hadn't stopped when I did. So the only, I, I'm almost finished with my little story here. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ways that I've grown and changed in the last what, two and a half years. And I think a lot of it is just really around self-awareness. I think when you start to think about your drinking, you are big bringing in that self-awareness because you're starting to think, well, why? Why am I picking up this wine? What, we, what am I doing? What, what's, what are the feelings underneath it? Um, and I think even before I stopped drinking, I was a meditator. I loved my Pima Chodron and Tara Brach and, you know, and all of these types of um, mindful practices. I had already started to use them, but I, but I got stuck because I was drinking. You know, there's, only, there's, there's only so far that you can go in um, personal development and mindfulness if you're constantly numbing out your feelings and um, shutting down access to parts of yourself. Um, and so since I've stopped drinking, I've just really found that the meditation practices I had already started trying to, to build have become so, so much more deep and profound. I'm just much more aware of myself now. Um, you know, in early sobriety, just just when you notice, oh, look look at that, I'm thinking about alcohol right now. I wonder what, is, what that's all about. And having this curiosity about everything that you feel and react to. Um, often when I was craving alcohol in the early days, I would look at that and there was a, I would always find some kind of a feeling that I was trying not to feel. And I think one of the biggest things I learned is that, yeah, you know what, your feelings can't actually kill you. You, you, just, you can feel them and you're going to be okay. And it seems crazy that I didn't, it took me till I was in my 40s to learn that lesson, but that's really what happens, I think, when you've been numbing your feelings with alcohol for most of your adult life. Because so much of what we do is unconscious, our reactions, when we pick up a sandwich, when we pick up a piece of candy. And I, one of the things sobriety has brought for me is just really giving me that moment to pause before I do or react to anything um, and, and, and notice what's going on and make a choice in my reaction. Because you always, you always have a choice whether to pick up that drink or not. You always have a choice whether to yell at your kid. It's just finding that space, that little bit of space to, um, to notice what's going on. And for me, that's the, I call it the secret superpower, superpower of sobriety, is, is finding that space between, um, between action and reaction, between, the, between reaction to what's going on and the action that you take. Um, and that, that, that ability to, to notice your inner world and your inner reaction and to have control over that. You can't control what's going on in the world. You can't control what's going on around you. But you can always choose how you respond to it. And now that I am never going to choose to respond with a glass of wine, it, it's really, really opened up my life. So that's my story. Oh, Maria, I love how you tell your story because you make it sound simple and it is simple isn't it it's simple but it's not easy necessarily yeah and attitude has so much to do with it I love that you are able to say you don't regret your past because um, that would fuel shame and and really 
I think that shame and regret our addiction, the addicted part of our brain can really leverage that against us. And um, it certainly was my experience was that the part of my brain that kept saying, you're not bad enough to need to quit. Mm-hmm. You should, yep. you know, pe- and people won't like you if they know this and you're okay. Just, you know, you're not that bad. And it was kind of a catch 22, I guess. Yeah. And um, yeah. so I, I really like that I, I'm always so appreciative of people that are able to just speak the truth plainly because I feel like for a lot of us that are really conditioned to be people pleasers or um, we're, if we're drinking to numb that the world is uncomfortable for us, um, the truth can be really uncomfortable. And to be able to say this is the truth and it won't kill us, let's just deal yeah. with it. It's really refreshing. So all that said, do you speak openly about being sober to the other people in your life? Or do you sort of have a, a, a spectrum of, of how open you are with people in different situations? Or what does that look like for you? Yeah, yeah. So I do speak openly with people. Um, I, I, I use my judgment when I meet people and, um, you know, in a situation where people ask why I don't drink. I mean, I, it's, I, I don't always just delve into this my whole life story but I I err on the side of openness I think I think because I'm in this very fortunate position that you know I'm coming from a place where I'm clearly in good shape you know I you know I I have a wonderful life I'm very happy I'm very successful and so I I think I'm insulated a little bit from sort of judgment around me so I, I feel that I'm in a position where I, I want to, as much as possible, say, look, this is this is what a, per, a person, this is what a person who got addicted to alcohol looks like. Looks like you. Looks like anybody. It can happen to anybody. So I do, as time has gone by, I do err now on the side of of, of saying, this is what happened to me. Now I think so. I, I will I will post on various anniversaries on Facebook. I, I post I post little things, and so all of my my friend group have been really very supportive because I have a friend group that still drink a lot. Most of them them right um and yet are also very very supportive of 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 my story and what happened to me so it's it's i feel quite quite fortunate about you know that environment in my work environment i you know i'm a little people know that i don't drink i start you know but and on a sort of one-on-one level if people are interested i will tell them a little bit more but i think you know, there may be some people in my life who just think I lead a healthy lifestyle and that's why I don't drink. But in general, I think anybody who knows me to any level knows a little bit about what's going on to the extent that, you know, in my friend group, people have reached out to me because they're going through the same thing. Because I want to be there for people. You know, I want I want anybody who is in a similar situation to know that I'm a person that they can reach out to um, and that, you know, I'll be there. And has anyone that the done that? Have you have you made some yes. real life connections? And do you yes, have a support absolutely. group? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, I have. I've made some real, some wonderful real life connections through Soberistas. We have some other California folk, um, and I'm hoping to meet some new people too. And there's also just in our in our in our friend group, I've had people, you know, people say, oh well, you know, I'd like to talk to you about about what's going on with you, and and you know, people have reached out to me through Facebook and stuff. Yeah. So I have. I have. It's it's more common than you would think. I think amongst you know people of our age who've been drinking for 30 years to oddly enough start to run into problems with it. It's it's not that. As we know, it's not that unusual. It's true. That's true. And, you know, I wanted to circle back to where you were talking about how much you drank and that, you know, the 
in terms of units or, you know, when you just think of a few bottles of wine a week, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there's listeners who are like, oh, that's nothing. <laughs> I know. And there's other listeners exactly. who say, oh, well, that was me. But I, you know, as soon as I pull up the, the chart, I, there's, there's a lot of um, uh, images online about high-risk drinking charts. Um, but mm-hmm. basically, heavy drinking for women is eight or more drinks per week. Yeah. Per week. I mean, that's ridiculous. And then when we look at like the really high risk, there's a pyramid. Some of the graphics have a pyramid and 20 drinks or more a week puts you into that real like that one. I think it's one percent or two percent of drinkers fall into that category. And I'm sure that most of the people listening to the show would be like, oh, yeah, I, I fall into that. And it, when you realize yeah. that how small of looking at the big cat, the big pyramid, you know, and that it's just the tip of uh, the pyramid is this high risk drinking. But, um, and then you realize that you're in that category and there's nowhere to go from there. Um, Yeah. Yeah, You can't sustain that. Yes. So it's, it's pretty shocking. And I, I know that was something that was a real eye opener for me. And one of these charts too also talks about the seven different kinds of cancers that are linked to alcohol, which include mouth and throat, larynx, esophagus, breast cancer for women, liver and colorectal cancer. So, you know, just the, the health benefits alone of taking that carcinogen out of daily contact with these tissues in our bodies. I mean, the the health benefits are huge. So even as much as lots of people, they say, how much were you drinking? And you say, oh, three or four glasses of wine a night, which were probably fish bowls, but never you mind. Um, It's easy for people to wave that off. But the fact is that's really, really dangerous level of drinking for a number of reasons. So I think we underplay that. I really do. That's one of the things I think with, um, you know, with people who are still drinking, friends and family members, you don't want to become the alcohol police. But I do every now and again try and put that message over and say, you've realized that the safe limit for women is, you know, what maybe one, one and a half bottles of wine a week. And most, you're drinking three bottles of wine a night, you know. So it's, it's, yeah, I try to, I try, I try not to, you know, because you don't, you don't want to be um, trying to control other people. But also there is a certain amount of education, I think, because I was, I was honestly, I was so oblivious to it. It didn't, it was just, I, I was horrified when I realized how much more I was drinking than what was, than was the safe amount. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's a coping mechanism that starts out as, as something that, you know, works, which is why we keep doing it because it does work at first until it starts working yeah. against us. So I'm curious yeah. now, how do you tolerate the things now that you used to drink over? So I journal. Um, I examine the feelings. I'm trying to think. Some of the things, the things I would have drunk over, often, you know, stresses, work stresses, kids stuff. Just so I think I'm just much better at um, noticing what's going on and um, just sort of thinking my way through things, feeling my way through through things. I mean, I do, I definitely had replaced a little bit with, you know, I'd like candy and gummies and that type of thing, but not too much. I mean, I'd always been a big exerciser and I think that helps too. I think it's just a whole completely different mindset around acceptance, right? I think because once you, there's a big thing with sobriety, you, you have to accept that 
I didn't want to have to stop drinking. I, I didn't want to have to change, but I had to accept that that was the only way I was going to live my life going forward. And so once you accept that, you start to accept other things. You accept mm-hmm. that, you know, teenagers can be really, have, have really emotional and difficult. And, you know, that's okay. You just have to let them be that way. You can accept that, you know, we have um, various challenges in our political situation or, or in your people that you have to work with. Just sort of this general, well, you know, this is, this is life. There's good things in it and there's bad things in it. And drinking over it isn't going to make, any, make it any different. So, you know, I think just in general, I think the lessons, that, that, that big lesson, that first step you take of accepting that you have to stop drinking, you can bring that acceptance into all sorts of other areas of your life and makes, it just makes things much easier when you don't feel as if you have to control everything that's going on around you. It seems to me that one key factor in your shift was information, because as you told your story, you talked about reading Annie Grace's excellent books, The yes. Naked Mind, and other other um, stories, The Drink um, by Ann Dalsett Johnson, and uh, Drinking a Love Story, and these things that really brought to your attention the information, and uh, I think I'm paraphrasing, but you the uh, the idea of once you know, you can't unknow. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So is that something that you recommend to people if they're sober curious oh, or questioning absolutely. their drinking? I do. I mean, I think for me, I read that book at the absolute perfect time. You know, it was it, I was ready and primed to read that. Uh, it spoke to me because, you know, I am a scientist. I'm an analytical person. And that book is extremely well researched. That it, it makes sense. So for me, that was the book that spoke to me. I think there are other books and other things that, 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 that other people find that speaks to them. But it was it was it was really you're right. It was I I I, I was hit with a reality and like a truth and this information that that I couldn't look away from and that's right once I knew what was going on there was no going back I knew I was I couldn't go back to what I had to, to the place where I hadn't known before so I would really I think we're so it's so we're so fortunate now that there is now so much great information out there for people who are curious about sobriety and addiction and to just to just to read the other thing I think that I really worked for me was doing that 100 days challenge because I didn't say oh, I'm going to give up drinking forever I said I'm going to give up drinking for 100 days and your brain at the end of those 100 days is not the same brain that it was going in and and by giving yourself that space of taking 100 days off drinking I did a lot of reading in that time a lot of connecting with people um you 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 can get yourself you get yourself then after a hundred days to a, to a place that you never knew you could be. It's like a leap of faith. You you don't know if you've never taken a hundred days off drinking. You've no idea how that's going to feel until you try it, and you've got nothing to lose by taking a hundred days off drinking. Right? It's a hundred days out of your great big long life. If you just take a hundred days off drinking and then you want to start drinking again, that's fine. No one's gonna you know no one's gonna tell you that you can't. It's it's all in, internal. I, I've seen this happen on the Soberistas website as well many, many times that people take that leap and say, I'm just going to do 100 days. And at about day 67 or day 70, they're like, oh, my God, I'm a different person. I, I understand this now. I understand it. I am not going to drink again. And I've seen it happen over and over again. So that's that's something I think. I think I think 100 is better than 30. I think 30 is still just kind of kind of white-knuckling it a little bit. But if you, if you take 100 days off, you're bound to have to go through some social occasion, some holiday, something that's hard that you wouldn't 
that you would normally have drunk doing, and you're going to have to stick to your 100 days. And, and you learn. I mean, I remember the first time I went to a party with my good friends. I didn't drink. I had a fantastic time, and it, it, I'd always associated hanging out with my friends with drinking, but that was just because I'd always put those two things together. It turns out that hanging out with my friends and not drinking was just as much fun, right? It was, it was kind of a revelation to me that I had always just assumed those two things had to go together and that the fun came from the drinking, but the fun came from the friends. Um, you know, and I never would have truth? known that. Yeah. There's so many times where I have that experience of, it, and even it's been eight plus years for me. And when I have that feeling of laughing with abandon, it feels so good. And I still think, oh my gosh, I'm really laughing. I'm really laughing. Yeah. Or, or um, my mom used to call it getting carried away. Don't get carried away now, girls. <laughs> um, you know, when we got silly and I'm, I'm surprised at how often when I'm with friends and really having a good laugh and really going with the flow of enjoying my friends and being present in the moment of how I can have that feeling of being carried away. And mm-hmm. it, it almost feels a little bit like being drunk. And I realized yeah. that some of that sort of free floaty feeling that I was trying so hard to achieve with alcohol was never really coming from alcohol yeah. in the first place. Yeah. So yeah, it's quite a revelation. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about labels. Do you refer to yourself as an alcoholic or alcohol-free? How do you talk to yourself and others about your choice to not drink? I think about that, too, because I know it's it's sort of a controversial thing. So I don't refer to myself as an alcoholic. And the reason I don't is because it feels... um, almost disrespectful to people who've had a harder time. It, 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 the analogy I would use, it'd be like calling myself a cancer survivor because I had, you know, a dodge, couple of dodgy moles removed. I mean, I definitely, I was on that spectrum. I would say, I like the DSM-5 criteria, right, of alcohol use disorder. I was definitely on a diagnosis there of early stage alcohol use disorder, um, which I think if I I was to describe myself clinically, that's probably what I would do. So now I just describe myself as alcohol free. Yeah. Or or I'll use the word sober um, because people understand that. Or I I just say, yeah, I'm also a vegetarian. So I kind of often explain it in that, well, I don't don't eat meat and I don't drink alcohol. It's just, you know, the the choices that I made. But yeah, I think that's an interesting one because I think that that language around, you know, alcoholic is something that it, for me, it, it prevented me from looking at my, when I saw somebody else describe themselves as an alcohol, as an alcoholic, it was like they put themselves, oh, you're over that line then, and I'm still over here, over this side of the line, you know, this kind of black and white thing. Um, and so this idea, it's very clear that there's a, there's a, a gray, great big gray area in the middle. Now, of course, I know I have, I, I do know a couple of people who became sober very young, right? They really did have that, you know, the minute they had any alcohol, they were in trouble and they just couldn't stop drinking. There's like, there's clearly people who are on that that spectrum where alcohol is a problem from the very first time they drink it. Um, but then there's, I think, people like me who, after a long, long time of exposure to an addictive substance, it does, it damages your brain. Are we all alcoholics? Are we all on the spectrum? I don't know. I think I think it's something that needs more discussion. Um, hmm. Well, I, I appreciate your perspective on that because I really feel like even the label alcoholic is it is meaningless medically, <laughs> yeah, and it, right. it's something that was coined by a program to sort of 
use as a label that people could use to empower themselves within the yeah. program. And for people, I, but I do think it's a choice whether or not, and for people that find it sort of shame-based and not empowering, I love that. I just love always hearing how other people use or don't use yeah. words to, to yeah. further their, their efforts. And so and I never um, went to an AA, an AA meeting, but not because I didn't, it's when I first decided to stop drinking, I didn't identify with that. Had I found it difficult, had I had a harder time quitting, I'm sure I would have gone there. You know, it's not it's not something that I have any any ideological opposition to at all. And I know lots of people now who have had great experiences getting sober through twelve step programs. And I've read Russell Brand's book. You know, I find it all you know very interesting. Maybe one day I will show, I will show up in that forum. You know, it might be an interesting way to meet new friends and and connect with people. But it, but yes, it was not something I think. From where I was sitting with my, oh, am I drinking a bit too much wine? The next step for me was not, oh, well, I'll go to an AA meeting. It was like, to me, that was something that was for some, for a very different kind of person than I thought I was. Now, I was probably wrong, but I, th- I do think that there is a misconception about about alcoholism and sobriety and, um, and the fact that podcasts like yours and all of the other different resources out there are very, are very helpful, I think, in casting a wider net to reach people who do need, who do need help. Mm-hmm. My, yeah. my perspective on, on the, on this whole question is really that um, the earlier we can intervene in our addiction trajectory, the more mm-hmm. choices we have. Yes. And for yes. people that are really far into their addiction, a rigid program that's abstinence-based, well, I, I'm a big fan of abstinence-based yes. in general. Yes. I think that's really the way to go. But uh, a really a rigid program, I think, is becomes one of the final choices. It's always an option at any stage, but other options, I think, start to fall away until, you know, you kind of get down to fewer and fewer choices the farther into addiction you go. So I really love your perspective on, you know what, forget labels, just quit now and do your, do your, quit where you're at and start where you're at. So I really love that. I know you have to run, Maria. So before you go, I I just want to give you a chance to, um, if you have any sort of closing thoughts or final words or words of encouragement for our listeners. I guess my only final word was, I think one of the things that has helped me stay very positive through what is has been sort of, you know, a scary time is this idea of being of always just staying curious and I think this came this is one of the things that appealed to me about the Annie Grace book everything it's like rather than thinking always oh god I'm gonna have to do this thing and I'm not gonna be able to have a drink just think huh okay well I've never done this without a drink before I wonder what it's gonna be like and 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 rather than assuming it's going to be difficult just don't don't have any assumptions and I think you know just in general going through life um it's almost like a gift. It's like, oh wow, I get to, I'm I'm 40 something years old. Now I get to do all of these things in a new and different way. I do feel that it has brought me back to a younger state because I'm doing new I'm doing old things in a new way. So that's my that's my final message. Oh, that's wonderful. It has been a true delight to get to know you and to hear your story. Thank you so much for taking the time to share and to let us celebrate with you as you around the corner on a thousand days of sobriety. Thank you you for being here, Maria. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the work you do.
Oh, it's my pleasure. It's an honor. And I just want to thank everyone for listening, for being so supportive of this program and for holding space with me for people that share their stories here. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take good care. I didn't, not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies behind. You're strong just cause you keep it on the side It just stays and wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can't shine When you say, oh, I did that Now how that with me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be Want to be free.